Hello and welcome to Reframe Your Life. I'm your host, Sandy Reynolds, and I'm excited to be back after a two-month hiatus. I have some great guests lined up for you in the coming weeks, and I'm excited to give you some updates about the podcast as well as introduce my very special guest today. Let's start with the updates. If you've been listening to Reframe Your Life in the last three years, I'm going into my third year with the podcast now, you know that I started with a co-host. We were very focused on helping women by providing discussions and topics and having guests on that we felt would help you lead your best life. When Joanne left the program, I took it in a slightly different direction, and I knew it was going to take me a little bit of time to really find my voice and know what my direction was going to be for the podcast. At Christmas, I decided to take a few months off and really think about where I was going with the podcast and to sit with what was feeling right for me at the time. It was the right decision and it really helped me to have a couple months of a break from Reframe Your Life and to get some clarity around my work and how the podcast actually fits into my work. So what you can expect from Reframe Your Life as we go forward is still a focus on spirituality. Reframe Your Life will be focused on helping you live a soul-centered life. And the guests that I have on will be guests who want to explore topics that are relevant to that conversation. When I talk about a soul-centered life, I'm talking about living by your values. I'm talking about being free from pleasing people. I'm talking about having rituals and routines that support your spiritual health. And this is a really big topic for me these days. I'm actually writing a book and creating a course on rituals, and I'll be talking more about that in the coming weeks. A soul-centered life is also being able to say no without fear of retribution. If you have ever been part of any kind of toxic religious systems, or if you've been in a place where you have had to hide what you really believe because of fear of what people would think if you really said your opinion or lived your truth, then you'll understand what it means to being able to say no to something without fear of retribution. A soul-centered life is also having clearly defined boundaries. I think that follows out of learning to say no without fear of retribution. A soul-centered life is also knowing what is true for you and acting on it. It is generously sharing your gifts with the world. It's rich in simplicity and you know from listening to the guests we've had on in the past, how important minimalism and simplicity is to me and how foundational I think it is to our lives and to helping us be free from consumerism and some of the messages of the world. A soul-centered life is also rooted in connection with all of creation. And I always have a bent towards the natural world and to how we can live lives that are more aligned with nature and more supportive of the health of the natural world. 
And a soul-centered life is making time for self-care. It's not just about what we do. It's about who we are, and it's about making time to take care of our inner world. So I'm really excited to have this clarity, and my first guest is Sarah Linar. Sarah and I have been friends for about five years, and we are soul friends. I consider her my Anam Kara, and I have a very close relationship with her that was really formed out of walking for an hour almost every morning for five years together. And during that time, we started to really explore where we were in our lives. Sarah is several years younger than me. She's in her mid-30s, and she has two young children and is enjoying being at home and putting her best effort into her family and her home. Sarah is a very wise old soul, and she lives by her values intentionally and gives a great deal of thought to the choices that she makes in her life. Recently, Sarah and I had a conversation on one of our walks on what it looks like to live out of love instead of living out of fear, and it really affected me. I wrote a newsletter on it, and if you're on my email list, you probably read it, or I hope you read it, and I mentioned that it was such a long newsletter that I wanted to record a podcast episode on it. So I asked Sarah if she'd be willing to talk about living out of love instead of living out of fear with me, and we recorded this episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Hi, Sarah. It's really good to interview you. It's so funny, actually, to have a conversation that we're recording like this. Uh, I think we've never um, actually recorded a conversation of ours before. No, but we've often thought we should be recording them. <laughs> <laughs> or making a movie of our own conversations. Yeah, it's so funny because I was thinking about some of our, our walks and our um, adventures over the past five years. And I was thinking about that walk where we were walking along the river and then we just decided to walk through the river. <laughs> <laughs> with our shoes on. <laughs> you decided that first. <laughs> I know. Anyway, speaking of walking through the river, yeah. you know, that was a decision out of love and not <laughs> fear. No, that was a totally fear-based decision. So what we're talking about today, or the reason that we are on the call, is to explore this idea that I wrote about in my newsletter last week and that you and I have talked about lots in the past, which is choosing love over fear and how that shows up in our life. And I, I actually never thought of that example of walking in the river, but that was totally a fear-based decision initially mm -hmm. because we were walking through, well, along a path and then it got into long grass and I had short pants on and I was afraid of ticks. Yeah, yeah. And so I didn't know what my options were other than to go back or to get in the water. And I chose to get in the water and it actually turned out to be a lot of fun. It did. It did. It, 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 it was also, um, I totally thought you were going to, I mean, you said you were going to do it and I was like, okay. And I kind of expected you to take your boots and stuff off, but you didn't. You just went into it. 
And that was kind of funny because my fear would have always been leeches or what's going to get me in the water. And you just went for it. So I was like, well, all right, here we go. (laughs) I know. And that's true. I don't like to walk on things either. Like I'd be afraid of being barefoot in in that um, water just in case who knows what's in there. So, yeah, it was just like just keep going right through the water. But we make a lot of decisions based on fear. And you and I were talking about some of them. And I I thought probably low-hanging fruit place to start is in relationships. And especially, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about parenting and how you see making fear-based decisions come out in your relationships with your kids. Right. I think that that was um, one of the first places I started thinking about why would I choose or parent in a certain way, or particularly when you see your personality in your child or something that, that you're trying to correct in your child, and why are you doing that? Is that correction out of love? for that child's future? Or is it out of fear that you see something from yourself, and you're trying to correct that in order to parent that out of them? So that was, that was for me where I saw something that I wanted to parent out of them, for fear that they would be like me in that area. Right. And sometimes I think like when I look back at my relationship with my kids, and you know, this applies as well to adult children, I think there's also the fear of them having behaviors or um, actions or something in their lives that are not socially acceptable. And there's a fear of wanting them to fit in and not be the weird kid. Right. Because you know what it feels like to be ostracized for something I think we all do for whatever at at some point in our lives you're made fun of for something yeah you want you don't want that to happen to your child yeah but you forget what happens on the inside as we learn how to deal with it I think that that as I talk through some of those things is I've learned my own lessons through going through some of these things, being made fun of um, for a dumb thing I did or a behavior that I had. And how do you figure that out on the inside of yourself to either correct it or move away from the people that are teasing you or whatever? And then that, when I open the conversation or the thoughts further to my children listening to their own inside voices, what happens then is the trust in the bigger picture. So that's where I find when I move past the fear, I can open it up to a love of letting them experience life and having that trust in how how I worked through things that they will work through things if that makes sense. Yeah, it totally makes sense. And I I think that we do protect kids a lot and shelter them from experiencing any kind of negativity. So, you know, I think that's part of like the status quo that we try to keep 
mm. kids in a you know certain way and we want them to fit in and that seems to be sometimes a goal of parenting is mm. we want our kids to fit in and be accepted socially and be liked by other people which is probably a reflection of what we want for ourselves so I was thinking about that and I think that really came out for me when both of my kids opted not to go to university or college yeah, yeah. And I remember really struggling with how that looked mm-hmm. and also this fear that they would end up homeless or not have a good income or mm-hmm. not be able to support themselves and be living with me forever. <laughs> and all of those fears. Yeah. And it was really not about getting a degree and about my love for them to learn or, you know, anything. It was just all, I just want them to go to university so I can alleviate some fears I might have about their future. But also, also about um, how that reflects on you as a parent. And when we you know, the the brag book, the grandmas or grandpas carry of the pictures of the grandkids, right? It's the brag book that we carry of our children's accomplishments and how that reflects on our identity. Oh, it's brutal. I can remember. So all of my friends have kids the same age or my like my group of peers that I would go to happy hour with and all of them, their oldest children were all the same age and they were all going to university yeah. Except for mine. Yeah. And I can remember actually people saying stuff to me, like my friends, like, oh my gosh, how you must be really struggling with the fact that your son's not going to university. And it was like he had committed some major crime mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, you know, had f- I had failed as a parent in some way. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember, you know, my husband saying to me, oh, well, you know, he can go to he can go to university anytime. Like he doesn't have to go this year. Yeah. He can go he can go when he's forty if he wants to go. You know, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. there's no there's no path that he has to be on. Right. And I it, that really helped me, but I still struggled with it for sure. Yeah. Okay. So that's sort of some surface areas where I think, you know, people can see relate to and you can think of in your own life where with relationships, especially as parents, that we struggle with fear and love. But where else do you think it shows up? Uh, The the other small um, surface example, though, is even in the minute things that we see every day. And that's how advertising works. And I always we've talked a lot about before, um, fear breeds consumption. Mm. I'm afraid of wrinkles. I'm going to get this cream. I'm afraid of gaining weight. I'm going to get this tea or this pill or this do this thing. And that's another, it's another trigger or it's another um, marker that I often look at, um, particularly with uh, consumption is I will usually trace back some sort of consumption to a fear of something. And um, so it can be as small as those everyday things. Um, I'm afraid of scurvy, so I buy oranges. Like, it's it's funny things like that, and I joke about it, but really there's certain ways that I behave based on a fear of something else happening, of not being healthy, of not... Um, 
being active or whatever. So those are, so I always check a consumption side to a fear or a decision as well. For sure. I, with consumption, it's so fear-based and I think about that all the time. For me, I think sometimes it's a fear of being irrelevant. Mm -hmm. And so it drives me to, you know, constantly be reading and watching and keeping on top of what our, you know, current thinking on all kinds of things. And if I sit sometimes and think about it, I'm like, do I really care about this? Or am I just wanting to be relevant? Absolutely. I think of, you know, people who, who, enjoy giving statistics in their commentary about things i i always think who i'm not going to check what you've just said for one but how much did you have to read in order to <clears throat> get to this point of statistics now and telling me what i should or should not do based on whatever you're presenting to me you know yeah I, I think it's just there in our culture. And, you know, we, we've talked a lot about that and just the messages all the time about, you know, fear while driving carefully. You know, yesterday when you sent me a text and you were going somewhere in a blizzard and I said, I really want to say drive carefully. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I hate that when mm -hmm. people tell me that, um, I don't think we need to belabor that anymore. Like, I think we've made a, a good Point and everybody listening can think about decisions that they've made. I think the harder thing, though, is to move into how do you make decisions out of love then? And how do you know the difference between a decision being made out of fear and a decision being made out of love? I think, again, going back to ourselves then is, is that ultimate trust it moves past the initial reaction of fear will always breed consumption. So if you stop stopping yourself in whatever decision you're making, you take a deep breath and understand what is being consumed, whether it's media, whether it's an actual item, and then holding that for a minute and then seeing what the fear is. I think it's, it takes some baby steps to be able to move past understanding why fear does breed consumption, why it is linked that way, and then how to understand the rest or the peace that comes from not consuming something. It goes into consuming social media, the fear of missing out, the fear of missing a party, the or a get together, or not having, uh, not knowing about things that are happening around us, you know, and so we consume all of these things in order to know and to be involved. Or when I stopped social media, there for sure was the, you know, I'm not going to be I'm not going to be invited. Like I, people will have to email me and they probably won't because people don't do that or call me on the phone, except that, you know, that's, there's that basic fear of why I would consume something. Mm -hmm. And yet when I stopped it, all of a sudden the actual, not all of a sudden. Yeah, I did stop being involved in things, but what I was involved in, I don't, I don't, really say that I'm a busy person 
because what I am involved with is deeply meaningful and the people who want to contact me are actually going to contact me. It's not an overreaching invitation to everybody. Somebody has actually said, hey, Sarah, come to this thing or we'd like to see you. And I didn't have to consume anything in order to get that invitation. But then it becomes a, a very personal relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just listening to an interview with an author. You probably don't know who he is because you're not on social media, but I'm just kidding. <laughs> you probably do know who he is. His name is Stephen Pressfield. And uh, he wrote the, the War of Art, and he is not on social media at all. I don't right. even know if he has a website. You know, right. he just keeps out of all of that. And um, I think part of the reason he's able to write the way he does and be so effective in what he does is because he isn't consuming mm-hmm. all those other voices and mm-hmm. spending all his time on social media. So you and I, though, were talking before we started recording about this um alcohol-free experiment that I'm in the middle of and so I've been like 51 days without having a glass of wine or any alcohol and one of the things that I've been noticing when I talk to people about this is how much people drink because they're afraid of how their social circles would respond to them if they don't drink yeah whether or not you know, I I even said to you, and I think, and you said other people have made this comment. Like I wouldn't have ever thought that that you would never drink if you would have said half a year ago, I'm gonna do this experiment of not drinking. I think I could have given you maybe 24 hours. <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> not that. You drink a lot, but it was for sure a part of your every, you think you would think about when do I get to have my cider in yeah. the noon or when do I get to have that relaxing glass of wine at the end of the day? Yeah, for sure. You know? It was a, totally a habit, which is why I wanted to address it in my life because I realized that it was, it just become a thing that I did without really thinking about it. You know, I read this book, This Naked Mind, and I started to really think about the messages of alcohol in our culture, especially for women, and started to reframe it a little bit, even as a feminist issue, that women are being marketed and messaged all the time that we need to have wine or alcohol as a buffer in our life, and that we can't just show up. You know, like, especially moms, apparently, there's a huge... Of women your age, there's a huge push on moms to be drinking. And uh, it's like you can't parent without a glass of wine in your hand. Because, but the other thing is deserving the break. You're not going to be running around with a glass of wine in your hand. You get to sit down. There's an excuse to stop and have your glass of wine and chill out. And if you don't do that, then you don't do that. (laughs) Right. Don't stop. You don't have a break and you don't really, do you even deserve one if you're not going to have a drink? Yeah. And so, and there's a lot of fear, I think, in around not fitting in with people if you're not drinking. You know, Mm -hmm. we, we talked about that, especially for you and I coming out of um, evangelical backgrounds where if you didn't drink, you were legalistic 
And so how alcohol actually became a way of identifying that you weren't one of the legalistic, straight, Mm -hmm. you know, buttoned up kind of judgmental Christians. And so there was a whole thing around it. I think that kind of got into our way of thinking. But I have been thinking of not drinking right now as a, a loving decision for me. I'm sleeping better, I'm having fewer headaches, spending less money, like there's a lot of benefits of it. And so when I focus on all of the benefits of uh, being dry, and um, like health, and then also understanding the way I show up socially, and how I've bought into that, I can't have fun unless I'm drinking mindset. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. been, it's been really good. And you know, I just keep going every day going, yeah, this is good. I feel good. And it's a, a loving thing right now for me to make that decision. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wonder about that. I'm, I'm thinking sort of about then what are other loving decisions we make for ourselves? What are other loving choices that... Where are places where we think for ourselves, I think? And I think that that's um, going back to the difference between fear and love is finding where we choose for ourselves. And I think it's tricky now to think when you're when when we consume so much of what other people say and what other people want for us or whether it's, you know, in parenting or um, how do you listen to that voice inside and know that it's yours? Mm-hmm. How do you know that what you're about to do or what you're doing is your thoughts and your your voice for yourself, a loving voice, in when there's so much other noise. Um, and I think that it's difficult to, to um, differentiate without practice. I agree. I think there's ways, like you said, about um, one of the helpful ways is to eliminate some of the noise. So for you, it's not being on social media. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I think all kinds of media, not just social media, but I think, you know, magazines and um, yeah. news any kind of news and, um, you know, television out anywhere there's advertising, I think limiting those things or at least becoming aware. So for me, I try to, when I see things, I try to think, what are they really selling here? Are they selling fear? Are they selling me that I need this to feel better about myself? Mm -hmm. So I think limiting is a good way to do it. And, um, and I think also, like you said, tracing back to consumption. So why am I buying this? Or why am I eating this? Or why am I drinking this? Like just examining some of our choices. Mm -hmm. It's taking the time. It's not that you don't do these things ever again. And we bring ourselves to this simplistic little thing that doesn't actually engage. But in order to differentiate between the noises and your own voice, there does need to be a time period of stopping mm-hmm. for you to be able to recognize what does your body feel like without alcohol. Something that was very noisy to me was church. 
And that was something that I had to stop doing. And it sounds counterintuitive. And there was definitely lots of questions. But in order to hear what I believed about my life, my relationship with my husband or my kids or my belief about spirit or or the source or, or whatever, um, I had to stop the noise that I had I had always had because I was raised in it. I had to stop that first in order to hear and feel what I actually believed about um, about belief or faith or church itself. That was a noise I had to get get out of as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, I totally agree. I think I've been calling my alcohol free journey and experiment because I don't want to say this is how it ends or this is, you know, it's a final decision. I think sometimes just approaching life as an experiment. And I did the same thing when I stopped going to church. I was like, I'm just going to take it off the table. Mm -hmm. I need to just step away from it. And, Mm -hmm. and then in stepping away from it, I realized how unhealthy it was for me. And like you, I've haven't gone back, but I still say I may sometime in the future. I don't know. Like I I don't want to put those kinds of parameters around things. And I think that's maybe part of the love and fear thing as well, is that I can hold things more open and say, for me now, that's not a good decision. Yeah. I think uh, as we're talking about this, um, and this is a very, it's, uh, it's funny to me, to be having this conversation recorded um, because, because as we're speaking, our voices are noise for someone else possibly. And I, and I struggle with that sometimes because I'm figuring these out for myself and my own noises are not your noises. And, and then even as we discuss fear, the fear of fear becomes another thing that we figure out how to consume in order to stop. Mm. And, and so I think as we discuss some of these ways of, of pinpointing it, it's not the same for everybody, but then also it's the stopping in silence and under trying to figure out and understand what your own voice is. It's not my voice in your head or your voice in my head or anybody else's. It's it's taking that time in order to hear what your own inner voice says. That takes a lot of practice. That takes a lot of trust. And it's very counterintuitive to what other people are doing. And it doesn't feel good. You and I have talked about this before, about you do get left out. Mm-hmm. You You do look weird. Um, poorly in social situations because you don't you don't fit in anymore and and you don't and you either have to be okay with that or you also retreat for a while and there's been many times where I've had to retreat but I also recognize that when I come back out again it's in a stronger and more stable place inside of myself than I've ever been before Mm -hmm. Um, and there's an ebb and a flow to that but again but that's that's for my own understanding and learning, right? Right. You know, I also think that it's not something you do on your own, though. And you and I have often talked about our friendship. And, you know, we have that friendship. And, you know, I think we are soul friends. Yeah. And I think there is an element that when someone knows you 
intimately and they know your values and they know how you want to live and what's important to you, they're able to call out those things in you that are fear-based. You know, I'm sure Matt does that for you. And I know Brian also does that for me and other friends as well. But I think you and I having walked and spent so much time together, I can talk to you about things I'm thinking about and you'll be like, you know, where's that coming from? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and help me to see, yeah, I'm 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 worried about finances, so I'm going to make this decision to take this job, right. and it's all based in fear. Or yeah. um, I'm worried about hurting someone, so mm-hmm. I'm making this decision. And then you know, what in creating with within that support, what happens is that. That inside fear that was inside of you that you've kind of shared or the decision that's coming from it, what happens then is that now between the two of us, we've created more space for it. And it's not just inside your head. It's outside between the two of us where we can both sit with it together. Mm -hmm. And that's in a very loving and trusting relationship. So it's not just acquaintance on the street. It really is based in something that just as you know, I love you as a friend and hold space for you while you're sitting in some fear. But then also holding space, I think, to help you figure out what it feels like to sit in some fear. Um, because sometimes you can't move out of it. Mm-hmm. Because that, with that financial insecurity or, or fear or questioning, it's uncomfortable. And you, you're trying to scramble for an answer and a decision and a choice in order to alleviate your uncomfortability in fear. That's where when we sit in some of the fears that we have, when you take the time to have a moment and sit and feel what it feels like to be afraid, you begin to understand and allow the space and time around you to figure out what it feels like to sit in trust. Mm-hmm you begin to recognize that this is uncomfortable sitting here with this fear surrounding me. But rather than make a decision right away, I can be uncomfortable and I'm, I'm still okay. I'm okay, uncomfortable. I'm not alone. And in sharing our friendship or in sharing that um, in, within your faith, you can do it within yourself and understand that that voice that spirit, that source that is within you is within all, it transcends the fear, it is above all of that, you find a place there where you're resting, and then can hear clearer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that saying things out loud helps put some of that fear in place. It sounds a little bit more ridiculous when it's outside. Yes, it's so true. Yeah. You know, and but I think that's the... um, the value of having uh, friends that you can be completely honest with and vulnerable with and just say, you know, this is what I'm thinking of doing and knowing that they're going to reflect back to you what they're hearing you say and help you to make a a love-based decision. And like you said, a decision based in truth and, and in faith and in, um, belief that there's something bigger at work here than yeah. just 
taking a job to pay the bills. Although sometimes we do that. <laughs> we do that. Yeah. 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 But even, but even the funny thing, you know, the, the example that I think about of that, like skin cream, right? Like we don't see ourselves the way that our, our loving friends see us, right? Like right, you can right. say, I'm afraid of these wrinkles. I'm going to get this, you know, surgery or do this thing or get this cream. And I'm looking at you like, God, I love those wrinkles. When you smile, they look like this. And, um, and, uh, and show you that when you say that out loud and what I see from you, why that's ridiculous or why that, why you don't need to even be afraid of that because nobody sees what you're just looking at or what you're afraid of. Right. And so that's a, a physical thing that we, <laughs> and, but I think it's a, a good um, metaphor as well is that we don't see ourselves the way other people see us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we often judge ourselves in a certain way that it's not even accurate we make de- and so we make these fear-based decisions that are even accurate to begin with you know to to uh, relieve some pressure or stress that we feel we need to relieve to make us feel better mm-hmm. when it's not true to begin with so no you know it's- we just have all these um unfortunately we we just live in this culture that's kind of indoctrinated us i think with a lot of fear well i think that's good i don't know if there's anything else that you want to add about love or fear it's um the only thing i mean i this has been a, a long time journey so it's not something that we sit with lightly I think even between you and I understanding um, how much time and vulnerability this takes and where I'm still on this journey, I'm still figuring these things out um, on a daily basis. And, but there are some hard, hard choices to make figuring out what it feels like to sit and understand truth, um, trust, and faith, um, and how that affects our decisions. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's a great way to end. It's it's um, an ongoing mm-hmm. process of really paying attention to our lives, and it's and it's not something you just like listen to a podcast and oh now I make love decisions, not fear <laughs> decisions. <laughs> And, and this, the, uh, the, only, the only other thing that I would say is the, the more that you can recognize your inside voice, um, the more that you take time and are obedient to what it says, um, the clearer it is, the, more, uh, the easier it is to recognize that voice over somebody else's or something else's voice in a, in a decision. Mm-hmm. The more you practice, the stronger it gets. And, yeah. it, and the louder and clearer it gets. Yeah. And we know, like we, I think when you say that, most people listening, if they take some time after this and they think about what's, just answer that one question, what's something inside I know to be mm-hmm. true, but I'm ignoring? Follow up on that, and that is loving yourself. Mm-hmm. 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 It is. It's respecting that yeah. within yourself. Yeah. 
Sarah, it's been great having this conversation with you. And just before we wrap up, I want to ask you a question that I've been thinking a lot about in my work with women. And that question is, what does it mean to you to live a soul-centered life? Hmm. I think that living a soul-centered life is living in a place where I hear and recognize what my soul sounds like. I'm obedient to that and respectful of what it says. And I trust the outcome, whether I understand it or not, based on respecting and responding to what my soul has said. Mm. That's great. Thank you. And thank you for being on Reframe Your Life. And I look forward to our next walk together. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for joining me on Reframe Your Life. If you enjoyed today's episode, please drop by iTunes and leave me a review. You can also join my newsletter. You can find all the details at sandyreynolds.com. Thank you for being part of this movement of women who want to live a soul-centered life.